So let's begin by introducing ourselves to the Gospel of John. So the Gospel of John was written by a guy named... Yeah, see, we're already there. We're already there. Uh, this was not John the Baptist. You're gonna, the first character we meet in John chapter 1, we're going to actually spend more time on him next week, but the first character we meet uh, outside of Jesus is John the Baptist. And so it would be very easy to assume that John the Baptist wrote this, and he did not. It's actually John the son of Zebedee. But the Gospel of John is not explicit on him being the writer. And so there's some debate on who wrote this book Five times we see in the gospel that, that the only label that the writer gives of themselves is that they're the, the beloved disciple. Multiple times throughout the gospel of John, you, you see this description that, that he is the beloved disciple. And so church history clarified and confirmed that this beloved disciple was indeed John the son of Zebedee, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, one of his youngest disciples and one of his closest disciples Irenaeus wrote in about 200 AD, and he says that the beloved uh, disciple was John. He says this about um, who wrote this. He said, John, the disciple of the Lord, who also had leaned upon his breast, did himself publish a gospel during his residence in Ephesus in Asia. And so we, uh, through piecing it together, we've learned that John, the son of Zebedee, one of the 12 disciples, one of the core three that Jesus ran with, actually was the one who wrote the gospel of John. So why did John write it? So tucked into the final few chapters that we're going to be getting to in 2024, and that's actually coming soon. That's like so weird that we say 2020-something, but here we are in the middle of it. But tucked into the final few chapters of this gospel, we find John's thesis for why he wrote this book. So in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, we read these two little verses, again, tucked into the final a uh, few chapters. It says this, John 20, 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So why? Why is John taking the time to spend all of this effort pinning this, probably having his hand burn after all the, all, all the writing? You know, we don't even write anymore. We have weak hands, right? And so imagine in that day, all the writing that he did, why did he spend all the time here? Two reasons. One, he wants us to believe that Jesus is the promised one. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the Son of God. And that by believing that we would have life in his name, so he wants us to believe and he wants us to find Life. He says that you may believe. This word believe or belief uh, is used 98 times in the Gospel of John alone. 98 times this word is used more than all the other combined uh, Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He spent more time using this word than all three of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, used. And to take it a step further, if you search for this word, it's used 292 times in the entire Bible. And 98 of those, almost a third of those, are used just in this one gospel. John invites us to believe. For many of us, he invites us to believe again, to wonder again, to reset as if we'd never heard it, and allow this message to melt our heart 
again. For some to believe for the first time and for others to believe again, to trust again by reading to see Jesus in a way that causes your heart to melt in his presence. I love me some Polar Express. We watch it every year. Uh, it's this, it's, it's almost like the first kind of ideation of, of the animation kind of movement that we've seen that's become like so amazing. And so it's almost a little creepy because they're like trying to figure it out. And some of them like, you feel like you might have a nightmare about some of these characters because the way that they look. Uh, but nonetheless, in, in the story is kind of interwoven this word believe. At the very end, if you remember, um, if you actually like have an imagination and like to watch this kind of stuff uh, during the Christmas season, um, there's kind of this buildup and this conductor would write like words and these tickets. I think that one of the tickets should be up here or there. So, and at the very end of the movie, he, he writes in this word, believe. And in this story, in Polar Express, again, I'm not knocking it, but, but it's not a Christian movie. It's not depicting Jesus. It's just this kind of general idea of let's believe together about something. I don't know what we're believing in, but we're believing, right? John's not doing that. His believing is about Jesus. He wants our hearts to be stirred about Jesus. It's not just some general idea of believing. It is that we would believe again that Jesus is who he said he was. And in doing that, we would find life in his name. This is the point. Life. In our believing. In our letting go of control. In our stumbling to him and trusting upon him that we would find life. Not an easy life, not a wealthy life, not a healthy life, but life in our souls. That we would find life and peace and hope regardless of circumstances. That we would know that Jesus has entered into our story. That we would believe again and we would find life in his name. That's where we're going as we embark upon this journey together. This book is divided into two two pieces. Uh, The first half, first act, second act. The first half is John 1 through 11. It's about signs. The second act is about his glory and not glory in the way we see it, but glory through suffering unto glory. And so that's the way the book is divided for us. We're going to have multiple sub-series that we're going to walk through. This first one being come and see, where we meet multiple people along the way. These multiple people have an individual personal encounter with Jesus. We're going to spend time engaging that. And so we're going to begin in the Gospel of John. And for us today, this is called a prologue. For some of you, don't know what that is because you slept through English class. But a prologue is an introduction to a book. And so before John is going to get into the stories about Jesus, he's first introducing us to who this Jesus is. And so we meet who this Jesus is in John chapter one. We ready for this? All right. John 1, starting in verse 1, it says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So we begin here, three points within this section of the prologue. The first is this, all things were created through this one. It says, it says in the beginning, 
Can you imagine what that could be potentially referencing? So John, uh, that was a rhetorical way. Can someone go for it? I'm in for it. Yes, thank you. Um, so Genesis 1, uh, verse 1. In the beginning, God created. It's an allusion to creation. John's using the same language that was used in the very beginning, in the beginning of the Torah, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. He's tying these two realities together. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. As, as Genesis begins with creation, John refers to creation, reminding the reader of the Old Testament opening verse of the Bible. He uses this word explicitly, this word word, uh, three times with multiple more references to it. This word, uh, uh, the word is translated logos. And so Tim Mackey says this about uh, the word. He says, now a person's words, they are distinct from that person, but they are also the embodiment of that person's mind and will. And so John says that God's word was with God, that is distinct, and yet the word was God, that is divine. So he is both distinct and divine. Out of the gate, John is making him distinct to any other created thing. He says all things were created through him. Not most things, not everything but angels. Everything was created through this one who is the word. All things also translated as whole or everything. The idea of this picture that the pre-existent Christ, that he was the one creating everything in the beginning, was not a uh, foreign thought in the New Testament. We see a couple passages, we could go to many, but a couple that I'll reference. In Colossians 1, verse 16, we're actually going to end in this passage in a little while. But it says, for by him, referring to Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So that Jesus, the preexistent Christ, created all things. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, it says, In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. See, this character is nothing less than God himself creating all things. Like Marvel, when we get the backstory of the Hulk or Captain America or Black Widow, I mean, you ask the questions like, how did Captain America get so ripped? Well, go to the backstory. And you understand that he was injected with something. Or you ask, how, why does he act like he's in the 1940s? Well, it's because he was frozen for a long period of time. And so when you begin to understand these things, the character now makes sense. And so as we're reading about Jesus turning water into wine, as we see Jesus multiply bread or raise Lazarus from the dead, we point back to where he came from, that he was in the beginning creating all things. That's where this guy began. In the beginning was the word. So John, one of Jesus' closest friends, is doing the same thing as he is pinning this tapestry of the story of the Gospel of John. He's pointing back to where this character came from. So John, a Hebrew, was well aware that Yahweh was unique and holy. He was well aware of this as a Jew, and he was. He knew that whoever was the creator in the beginning was God. There was, there was either God or nothing. 
They were not types of God. It's not like Greek mythology where there's kind of different types of gods. It was if you were in the beginning creating, you were Yahweh, otherwise you were not. And so Jesus is not just an angelic being. He was in the beginning, he was creating, and therefore he is fully and completely God. The one God is the sole creator of all things. This one God who ruled over all things. He is holy and there is none like him. That's what John's trying to communicate. If Jesus was in the beginning creating, he was indeed God himself. I'm telling you, when I began to study this, there's some books I read alongside of it and began to just get this picture of Jesus. He wasn't just a good man. He wasn't just a moral teacher. He wasn't just uh, uh, supremely religious. He wasn't just angelic in nature. When I began to see how powerful and majestic this one was, fully God, fully man, I'm telling you, there's something that just erupted in my heart and wanting to surrender my life to him. When I began to see his true nature that John's trying to reveal to us. So we see first, that all things were created through this one. Second, we see that this one is the light of the world. We'll read in John chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, and then 9 and following. It says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Again, in verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Second, that this one is the light of the world. The true light now has dawned, we read. The light was arriving, and he was now in the world, and he had arrived, and the world wasn't aware that the light was here. As we're reading here, we're reading that there was darkness in the world and no one had any idea that this light had shone and had shown up to this world. Though the world was made through him, they, the world both didn't know him nor did they receive him. For all who believe, John says though, who receive him, they can find life in him. He says that the light has come and darkness cannot overtake it. Again, we can live in a world where we feel like darkness is overcoming. And friends, we gather to remember the story and we gather to remember the hero. The darkness might feel like it's pressing. It will not overtake it because Jesus is king. We see that light has come. And then third, we see that this one became flesh and dwelt among us. John's claim is that this word who was in the beginning who created all things has not all uh, has created all things has now become flesh and dwelt among us. I'd love to read this to you in John chapter 1 verse 14 it says and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him, speaking of John the Baptist, we'll get to him next week, and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness he, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, 
Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So the Son of God was sent into the world in real space, in real time, and he has dwelt among us. He's revealed God's glory. He's revealed God's grace uniquely and perfectly. And he uses this play on words. I don't know if you noticed, but he's referencing in this play on words Moses in the time in Egypt. So if you could rewind back to Egypt, you find that in the time of Egypt, there were these people who were enslaved for 400 years to Egypt, to Pharaoh. And so for uh, decade after decade, even century after century, these ones, these Israelites were enslaved to, um, to Egypt. And we find they begin to cry out to God over and over again. And eventually, God sent a rescuer in Moses. And Moses led the people through the ten plagues, ultimately through the Red Sea, and ultimately into uh, moving towards the promised land. And as they do that and the Ten Commandments are given, Moses has this conversation with God. As God, for 15 chapters in Exodus, God kind of depicts what he wants this tabernacle to look like where his presence will dwell. And in this space, Moses and God have this interaction that John's using the same language of. And so in Exodus chapter 33, if you want to rewind to the second book of the Bible, In Exodus chapter 33, we read this brief section where Moses says this. Moses says, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So this interaction where Moses is like, I want to see your glory. If I'm going to make a home for you, I want to see your glory. And then Yahweh says in return, like, you can't see my face, but what I will do is I will pass by you. I will cover your eyes and you will see my back, but you cannot see my face because if you see my face and all its glory, you cannot live because of sin. And then we fast forward to the, uh, just a few verses later in, in Exodus 34, 5 through 8. It says, so Moses cut No, in verse 5. The Lord descended on in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the Father's on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. This profound encounter that Moses had with the glory of God, which is the manifest presence of God before him. God passed by, declared his name, 
and Moses went reverent, low, and worshipped God. My friends, what Moses didn't see or experience, we have seen fully and completely in the person and face of Jesus. The one who was with God and was God, he donned our humanity to rescue and to redeem us from sin and death, full of grace and truth. God has made himself known finally and completely. And you no longer need to wonder what God is like. You no longer need to question who God is and what he is like. You can fully and completely and entirely see the character and nature of God in the person of Jesus. In Jesus, we see the fulfillment of everything that Moses spoke of. We, finalize, we get to the finality of this, finale of this uh, section with this zinger that John ends with when he says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus has revealed him to us. In the first few centuries of the church, which would be the first few centuries of, um, of what we know of, and why am I now struggling with this. The first few centuries, there it is, moving on. There was confusion about who Jesus was within the church. There was confusion. And there was debate on was Jesus fully God or not? Was he fully God or was he less than God? And in 325 AD, a few hundred Christian bishops and deacons gathered to this place called Nicaea. And in this place, they had this council And in this council, they discussed looking at the Gospels and clarifying who is Jesus. And it culminated when they said this, We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten from the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him, all things were made. This is who we gather to worship. These first five chapters, John invites us to come and see. The other characters that we're going to read about are nothing like this one character who was the one who created, who was the one who is the light, who became flesh. And John hopes, as he begins this gospel, to set the stage on who this Jesus is. I'll end with this point, which is this. We as the church are invited to draw on the power of Jesus to walk out this life. We as the church are invited to draw on the power of Jesus to walk out this life. Paul was enchained, uh, and he was writing to the church in Colossae. And you can imagine, chains because of the gospel, and he writes to them this little short four-chapter letter called called Colossians. And after a greeting that he begins the letter with, as any good letter begins with, he writes a poem to encourage these people to draw on the power of Jesus to walk out this life, reminding them of of the universal lordship of Jesus over all the powers of the world. And I want to read this little poem that we find to become a hymn of the early church that is a bedrock of what we stand on. In Colossians 1 verse 15, it says this, Speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, 
visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Though chained, he's inviting ones who read it, this text, or pray this text to imagine a different world than the one we see all around us. Imagining a world where Jesus rules and rescues and redeems. A world where a new sort of, an, of wisdom is unveiled. A world where an alternative way to be human exists. A world where Jesus is reigning over all of our lives. See, Paul wants people to think, not just to have principles to live by, but to think different because of how they understand Jesus. To grow as genuine humans made in the image of God, with all wisdom and wealth and understanding of Jesus as their Lord. And he knows that his readers, like us, can get lost in the pressures of our pagan rulers. We can feel hopeless as if the world is out of control. But friends, Paul, more than anyone, could have felt despair, feeling like he'd been overcome by the powers because he was in chains. So he poetically proclaims a life-shaking message to them, to himself, and to us, shaking in a way his fist at darkness saying, darkness will not have the final say. He's invoking and celebrating the hero that all things submit to King Jesus. It's not the world we see with our naked eye. What we see with our naked eye, what he saw with his naked eye, was local officials giving allegiance to Caesar, bullying magistrates, threatening officers, injustice and pain. Yet, He's inviting us to live in a world by faith where Jesus is reigning and Jesus is ruling over all things. See, the world isn't out of control. The darkness will not overtake it. And we're invited in this gospel to believe again. We're invited in this gospel, like Paul's inviting the church in Colossae, to believe again and to find life in his name. Friends, we're invited to believe again. We're invited to reorder our lives toward loving Jesus. For those who haven't found life in Jesus, you're invited to find life in him. You're invited to receive him, to trust upon him. For others of us who have followed Jesus for months or years, we're invited to believe again. See, we live in a dark and confusing world. And it feels like darkness increases and stability decreases. But as Paul wrote in the jail, recalling what is true about the supremacy of Jesus, we sit here and we too remember and we set our allegiance upon Jesus together. We trust in him completely. We follow him with gratitude, just like the Marvel movies give us a backstory of who these people are and then display them. We are invited through this gospel to see in the beginning was the Word. It was with God. It was what was God. It was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. 
And apart from him, nothing came into being that's come into being. And then it fast forwards and says, and this word became flesh and he dwelt among us. We've seen God through the face of Jesus. And so we reset our allegiance upon him. We trust in him again. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks. We thank you for this good book. We thank you for this reminder, this declaration to us of what is good and true. We thank you that you so loved the world that you gave your son. Not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. We thank you, God, that you did not leave us on our own, but you've come and you have rescued us. And for us today, as we sit under this text, help us to believe again. Help us to find life in his name. But my friends, as we gather in this space with stresses and unknowns and pressures and things related to finance and things related to vocation stuff and things related to family life and parenting and marriage and friendships and future and all the things that we can feel, but we rest in the reality that Jesus is Lord. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being which has come into being. And in all things, he will have preeminence. But we want to come under the reality of Jesus as Lord together. We give you thanks. Stir our hearts towards you. In Jesus' name, amen.